0: Welcome to Food & Loathing, coming to you from the city where fortunes are made and lost on the single roll of a dice, but coaching jobs are apparently dependent on whether you make the playoffs, (laughs) or I suppose what people find in your old emails. Be careful with those things. I'm your host, Al Mancini. Joining me, as always, is the man who puts the engine in engineer, the one and only Rich Johnson.
1: I think I can. I think I can. Uh, I don't know if I can.
0: <laughs> we are coming to you this episode from one of Las Vegas' finest and most exciting restaurants, which is celebrating its fifth anniversary this week, Sparrow and Wolf. Yeah. Rick Moonen could not be with us for this episode, so, sitting in as our co host, as well as our physical host, providing us with a restaurant in which to record, Mr. John Anthony. John ah. is the managing partner of Sparrow and Wolf and the VP of operations for its parent company, Spaghetti on the Wall. Unless my um, LinkedIn pr- search was a little out of date, That's I'm not quite correct. sure. We'll check in with him. <laughs> he began his culinary journey in Pennsylvania at his father's pizzeria, The Purple Onion. His Las Vegas resume includes stints at Gallagher's Steakhouse, as well as some of my personal favorite restaurants that no longer exist. Including Social House, Cat House, and Cumsaw, where he worked with Chef Brian Howard.
1: And my favorite, where I met you, Grinders Pizza Lounge.
0: That's right. You know, keeping
1: consistent here.
0: I loved Grinders. You could get a, um, first of all, I think you guys did a Panzerati there, right? Which was awesome. And then you did a roast pork, very similar to John's Roast Pork in Philadelphia. Yeah. You had some mean things in there. And then you sold it to people that, as best as I could figure out, didn't know how to make a pizza or a sandwich. Oh, it was heart-wrenching. <laughs> it really was. Um, I mean, you know, I don't think they're still there, so I guess they're not going to be mad.
1: No. Anyway. <laughs> the check cleared.
0: It did. There you go. In 2017, Anthony and Howard took a huge risk on Spring Mountain Road by opening Sparrow and Wolf, a high-end, super-smart restaurant that defies characterization in a neighborhood that most locals still call Chinatown, which at the time was best known for Asian cuisine. So it wasn't just Chinatown, but it was definitely Asia Town at the time. And I'm going to be honest with you, I loved this restaurant for day one. I was also 100% convinced <laughs> it was far too eclectic and cerebral for this neighborhood. I was certain you were going to have to dumb it down. I have never been happier to be proven wrong in my life, and I always. Always admit when I'm wrong, because it happens a lot, so it makes it easier to just admit it. (laughs) Congratulations for proving me wrong, John. Ah, Thank Um, you, Al. Yeah, you guys hosted just about every A-list foodie in Las Vegas for the fifth anniversary party, which was just, just this week. And I mean, seriously, if someone had tossed a hand grenade into that party last night, for us, it was last night. For those of you who are listening, it was Friday. Somebody, yeah, it was this week. For some, If somebody had tossed a hand grenade into that party, I don't know where the fuck I'd be eating ever in Las Vegas. Because Everybody was here, man. It was just all the cool kids.
1: I'd be doing food reviews. Yeah, yeah. You, you would. Oh, yeah, you weren't here. That's right.
0: Um, so, man, congratulations on five years and on a great party. Tell me, how did it feel to be there last night celebrating? It was awesome. It was pretty surreal.
2: You know, you begin a project like this and you mentioned it, it's ambitious. There was a lot of moving parts and there are always a lot of moving parts and you're constantly worried up to the last minute for a party even. Uh, Brian and I in the morning stressing immediately, do we have enough guests that are going to show up? And then about two hours later, we have too many guests showing up. And, Mm -hmm. you know, that, that last minute configuration every single time in the room to make sure it feels comfortable when they're walking through and they have everything they need, but still that element of frivolity where it's a party but it was its a great culmination of five years and I think it encapsulated a lot of what we've been able to do and what we've you know where we pushed the boundaries and where we still left people feel comfortable uh, within the space. Uh, so at the end of the day, I actually got a couple of hours sleep, uh, got back here in the morning, starting to set back up for dinner service because tonight's back to business as usual. So,
0: you know, I like to use this podcast to, you know, there's, there's some people who listen to this podcast. They know everything about the food world. They know all of you guys, you know, it's, but then sometimes people listen and they're new to the scene or they've only been on the scene a couple of years. And I think it's important to remember the history because we live in a city that tears down its history. Um, so when Sparrow and Wolf opened 5 years ago, we had off-strip dining. And there were some very very good places that were off the strip, but they were often they, they were kind of few and far between. I mean, you know, Rosemary's had already done something cool. Scent of Japan had already done something cool. Forte Tapas had already done something cool. But for Brian to be coming from the strip with an incredible strip resume going off-strip to open something new, it took a little longer to open. I know that there Shark. were ta- there was talk about Um, Brian, and I think you were involved at that point, going downtown, either being in the Arts District or being in the Fremont East District. And then the news came that you were going into Chinatown. Now, to set the scene for people, because it's amazing so much has changed in five years, the idea was, what the fuck are they doing going into Chinatown? They're not an Asian restaurant. Now, we'd already demonstrated with Raku that you could put really high-end restaurants on Spring Mountain Road and they would get attention. But nobody had really done something that was this experimental. What was your thought process about coming to Chinatown? Well, you know, we had that
2: conversation about downtown quite a few times. I mean, there were moments where we were close to putting a shovel in the dirt. uh, And through the years that I've been working with Brian, from the beginning of this project, I think it's the amount of times that you say no to something that ultimately lead to success. Uh, all too often, we get excited about opportunities because they're not often given within this space. So you'll find a lot of people who say yes without thinking through what the long term is going to be. Um, for us, this was a location that we always loved. Uh, this used to be Jenny Uh And Jenny didn't want to sell the space initially. Uh, so we had been looking around, uh, and it was uh, sort of one of those 11th hour moments where she had called up and asked if we were still interested, and obviously we very much were. Uh, parking lot for us in this space with Macy's is fantastic. We don't have the issue that you find in a lot of other strips uh, up Especially and down. Especially on Mountain. Spring Mountain. 100%. Yeah. I mean, parking
0: yeah. sucks on well, Spring Mountain. And
2: Mountain. that's <laughs> it. And, and we'll get to the conversation of the you know the main Chinatown Plaza by Wynn, where we're doing uh, uh uh half bird and that was a major conversation obviously with the parking situation but here that was not the problem we also had an end cap which gave us great visibility to the street itself uh which we think is a big part of it uh but ultimately coming down to spring mountain was about realizing that this was the street that we would go to eat at when we were off work so if we got done dying at work at one o'clock in the morning we'd find ourselves at Ichiza or Raku. You know, if I was going out for a bite to eat with my family, I'd love going to China Mama or, you know, wherever I w- could find a spot. You know, we're getting pho, pho kim. And at the end for us, we wanted to be a part of this sort of multicultural, uh, uh, f- you know, uh, street that it is. Because it's not just Chinatown, like you said, it's, it's much more Asia Town. Brian takes a lot of influence uh, from Asian cuisine. Uh, you see it on a lot of the dishes that he does. Uh, His wife's Cantonese. Uh, So there's a lot of that that comes from the home front. But it's not a fusion-style food that we do in Sparrow and Wolf. Uh, I often call it borderless. Uh, He takes influences from around the world. So you're seeing that menagerie of flavors that hit the dish. And really, at the end of the day, we want it to just be one thing, which should be delicious. And hopefully tie something, some sort of muscle memory into the dish. that gets people excited.
1: I, I call it NFC when I come here. I have have no fucking clue (laughs) what it's going to be from month to month, quarter to quarter. Sure. Well,
2: and that's the other part of it, right? Our program from day one was always meant to be uh, a heavy rotation. Um, You know, our staff is finely tuned to the fact that Brian moves at 100 miles an hour and as we change our menu quite often it's not just trying to play seasonally but much more of that micro seasonal where we can pick up you know six weeks of leaks or whatever it might be that we're just going to have that menu item right there uh so for us that's a, a a big part of this space and you know it's a it, it's something you have to overcome when you have a guest who's looking at a Yelp review from two years ago and they're mm-hmm. showing you photos from somebody that had taken them
0: amateur-wise. <laughs> well, luckily on your Neon Feast listing, you can update that with daily specials. We absolutely like. can. <laughs> We're very excited about that partnership. Uh, um, you know, Brian was one of, the, one of the smartest chefs in this town for a very long time. One of my main critiques with him from when I... Um, criticized him once back in town square. Was that too many ingredients, too many tricks, too many bells and whistles? And when and you know, when he was over at Kumsa, he's the guy that was always serving me testicles and brains and eyeballs <laughs> and stomachs and things like that, and trying to scare my wife away. But she can't be scared by any of those dishes. Um, just super, super crazy, experimental. And then when he opened over here, he kind of told us, "Well, I'm gonna go, no, I'm gonna be a little more toned down." And then it opened, and then there's lamb's next <laughs> on the menu, and there's all of the Brian bells and whistles. So tell me, was that the plan all along, or were you surprised that this neighborhood accepted all of that craziness? Well, you know, working with Brian for fifteen
2: plus years now, I've gotten to see that maturation of cooking that's come along as well. We started a cat house under Carrie Simon together, and. He was that chef who was using technique constantly to overshadow maybe ingredient or anything that he could do. But the, the the level that he's gotten to now, where he realizes that the ingredient needs to be the main star on the plate. So something like lamb neck can come off as a, a bit of a, a an obtuse dish that guests aren't aware of because it's a butcher's cut. Mm-hmm. But when they get to the dish itself, they realize it is just the star. It's just it's care of the dish. It's slow and low cooking. It's reverence to the past with a little touch of modern flair and for for what Brian wanted to do in this space is he wanted to throw a dinner party every night. Mm-hmm. But you're never going to tone Chef Brian back completely. Yeah. He has to he has to throw a little flair onto it. He has to bring a little element of surprise. Something as simple as the Chinatown clam casino, which was awesome to see it make a return last night. That that touch of uni over the top of that clam casino gives you such an heavy umami element that just kind of plays off the back of the neck that it might be something completely foreign to you but you take that first bite and it feels welcoming and warm
0: yeah. this is the restaurant that i send guests to or friends to when i know they're the kind of people that want to have a dish that they're not going to get anywhere else yeah. now you you do have familiar dishes you have a great charcuterie and cheese program you have very simple approachable things um you, oysters, you know, so I don't want to scare people away if they're not that level of customer. But let it be said that if you are the person that wants a dish that you're going to take meticulous notes because you're never going to see it on a menu anywhere else in Las Vegas, this would be a place to come for those dishes. So congratulations on five years. I appreciate that. And I am, I'm so glad that I'm wrong and Brian's cooking is better than ever. (laughs) And you've always had a fantastic team behind you and you've spawned some great chefs that have gone on to other restaurants. And I remember Justin Kingsley Hall being over here when it opened and lots of great people. So congratulations. So now we've got to get a little through the, what we've done this week, part of the show. uh, Rich and I'm going to do mine as a lightning round. We're going to get to Rich shortly, but have you been to any good meals that you need to tell me about this week? uh, This week or so. Yeah, Yeah. let's
2: see. Uh, You know what? I I saw you over at Valencia Gold. Yeah, that was actually one of my that was my first time over at that space, and what a fantastic location he has over there. Chef's doing some really incredibly classic tapas, and then you know, challenging again the American palate because he spent so much time uh, over in Spain to actually bring over traditional yeah. uh, style dishes. Uh, I mean, his octopus, I've never walked into a restaurant and said, eh, after I ate octopus. I either love it or I hate it, right? right? And it's very often the way you prepare it, where it has that textural play. And when you nail octopus, the little Greek
0: boy in me gets very excited. So <laughs> cool. I highly suggest Valencia Gold. Cool. Rich, what about you, man? Where you been, brother? I'm going to
1: make one addendum on, on uh, Sparrow and Wolf. It's been a couple of years, but I've come here and I find things I've never heard of. Salsify, which I had a couple of years ago, which was wonderful. Brute vegetable. Oh, yeah. n- absolutely had never heard of it because I'm, I am i don't do this for a living. Sure. I just do it as a hobby. And I cried almost when it left the menu. <laughs> so did I. <laughs> I it appreciate
0: that. I just uh, well, had some you know, salsify at um, the Cirque the other night. Oh, so my. <laughs> nice.
1: Trying to get out and do more things as we are now recording episode number 51. 51? Oh This wow. little... Uh, dog and pony show. So we finally made it to Other Mama last week. Um, Good thing we got there when we did the stroke of five because they were reserved out but had a couple spots at the bar. And we sat there and had a beautiful uh, combo sushi. Uh, We split a couple of, not really mains, they're sort of small plates, they're large small plates. So three between the two of us worked out pretty well. A creamy uh, pan-seared shrimp in in an almost vodka sauce, but a little something else that my... Brain, my uneducated palate could not identify, but I but I loved it. A panko breaded white fish on a bed of slaw and barbecue sauce, and chicken skewers. Split a bottle of sparkling rosé, which worked out very well. In fact, we loved it so much we stopped at Total on the way home and bought a couple of extra bottles nice. for home. So on this podcast, I have shared uh, many a home kitchen. So wait, just
0: really quickly, so you yeah. yay or nay on other mama because it's one of my favorite restaurants.
1: I did yay, okay. enthusiastic yeah. yay, cool. absolutely the board uh the thing was i was sort of put off when i looked at the menu online but then you told me no come because there's a bunch of stuff on the board every night yeah yeah, look at the blackboard we we went off the blackboard so i have shared many a home kitchen triumph on this show Uh, so it's only fair that i come clean with other things Uh, last couple of weeks i've done ribs and a brisket on the barbecue nice basic rub put it in there for uh, many hours low and slow with the ribs i even pulled out my little chief smoker from hood river oregon Yes, my smoker is racist. And uh, put them in the racks for about five hours, Change the wood chips, put them in a couple more on the on the grill, the gas grill, to, to actually finish them off. And I can say, without a doubt, in all confidence, both the ribs and the brisket were utter abject failures. Oh. God, they <laughs> okay. were awful. The tough meats, the fibers Brutal. did not break up. We threw most of them away.
0: It's because you should have cooked them in the crock pot with... Sweet, yeah, baby rays, sweet baby Ray's, like that
1: rays. customer at Mabel's that's, Barbecue yeah, said. Exactly, was... <laughs> telling Michael Simon how to make barbecue. You start <laughs> yeah. with a crock pot.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> and have you heard of Sweet Baby Ray's?
0: I think that's fantastic.
1: That's, that's, yeah, Yeah. <laughs> Michael shared that.
0: Chef Simon shared
2: that's, that. Story we've got really
1: barbecue all over this valley. Wild Fig is almost walking distance from my house, so that'll be my go-to for barbecue anymore. <laughs> and uh, I will uh, turn my tail in shame and.
0: <laughs> okay. That's okay, man. You know, but we, we own our mistakes yes, here. We yes. do. Well, and if we, we learn from them, them, then it was something constructive that came apparently from it.
1: Apparently And not. I just <laughs> learned <laughs> not to eat barbecue at Rich's house. Yeah.
2: Right. So we've right. learned
0: There we go a mistake. <laughs> you forgot one, Rich, or were yeah. you worried we can't talk about it because it was a secret?
1: Oh, the secret menu at Jade over at uh, Rampart. Huh? Very nice Asian place. Uh, you invited me, uh, and we uh, came over there. I like being Al's plus one once he, in a while.
0: Yeah, he's not the prettiest of my plus ones. But, you know, he he's a good dinner companion. <laughs> I was about to say, a great conversation. Great conversation. Right. Yeah. 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 Uh, that's, by the way, this is just, you know, I do like to talk about the behind-the-scenes stuff that goes on. And you got to love a town where they invite the media in to try their secret menu. <laughs>
1: yeah. Publicize <laughs> well, the, is the like, secret menu. And yeah. have it all printed up, too.
0: But if you do go into Jade, which is a beautiful restaurant, really nice, over at the um, Rampart Casino, J.W. Marriott, which is a great grounds like i love all the outdoor space over there and they have some nice restaurants in there um and they have the secret menu it's not printed out but um some of the highlights that we tried salt and pepper whole fish pan fried sea bass pork with udon noodles some lap chong fried rice with chinese sausage um, the spicy shrimp that Rich loved, yeah. big old lobster. So, honestly, if, you, if you're if you over there and you live in the neighborhood or you just are over gambling and you head into Jade, or if you just want to go and see what's secret, just ask them, what the fuck is on the secret menu tonight? But I, don't say fuck because no. they're nice people. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Okay, other great meals I've had this week included a cheesesteak from those guys' pies, one of my favorite cheesesteaks in Las Vegas, especially now that there's no grinders around anymore. Yeah.
2: I think those guys is great.
0: Yeah. Um, Another tasting at the Vegas Test Kitchen for the great Las Vegas Coffee Shop giveaway, which is almost ready to announce a winner. I had a great lunch at DW Bistro and a return to what may be my favorite new restaurant of 2022, Anima. Uh, This time I was with the Black Sheep's Jamie Tran. I won't go into detail. It was just awesome, as always followed by some libations at DW Bistro, where I feel like I'm beginning to become a regular, and I like that. we
1: got to get the podcast back over there.
0: We should. We should definitely get in there. The most exciting meal of my week was probably a return to the Cirque for um, Chef Damien Evers' new seasonal tasting menu. We did both the the main eight-course tasting menu and the vegetarian tasting menu. That one could be made vegan if you're vegan. We just did it straight-up Vegetarian. Um, I like Chef Damien over there. He's, he's cool. He's a cool cat. He came from, oh man, I'm singeing now on the restaurant he just came from, but it was a very open fire concept restaurant. Mm-hmm. And he's, of course, he's worked at some fantastic restaurants, but he has taken the Cirque away from a lot of the tradition. And we have somebody who knows the traditions of the Cirque that's going to be sitting down with us shortly. Um, and he's Probably taking it more in a personal direction than any of the chefs that I've ever seen at the Cirque at any of the Cirque location, Um, and I'm enjoying what he's doing with it. I think on the vegetarian tasting menu in particular, you can see some really wild dishes. Um, His smoked beet, and I generally hate beets, but this is a wonderful smoked beet, and then a tomato tartare in a gelée with a heavy, really aggressive smokiness and tartare. Tartar flavorings in there and this is just not the shit that you expect you know when you order a vegetarian tasting menu a lot of times the reason i order it next to the main one is to go okay are they just pulling one ingredient out and saying okay we'll just take the lobster out of your lobster salad and there you yeah. get the salad um and you know so i went down the eight dishes and i said how many of those these are really great where they stand alone that they're perfect alternatives and how many of them are, you know, just going to be like, well, I'd rather have the main one, but if, if I'm vegetarian, I'll eat this one. And I'd say at least half of them were, were bold, stand on your own, go there just to try this dish. So um, if you are a vegetarian, check that out. I always love The Cirque. I've told all my The Cirque stories so many times, I'm not going to bore everybody here with all of them, but I go way back with that restaurant in many locations. And then there was Saturday, which was a bit of a whirlwind. It began with Tequila and Mezcal Festival at Resorts World, Got to love that. Up on the roof of Resorts World, beautiful weather this past weekend. Um, All the Vegas skyline and very short lines for pretty high-end tequila. So I was enjoying that. That was nice. So bravo to my friends at Wally's for putting that on. And then um, where else did we go? The grand opening party of RPM. Rich,
1: Yeah. did you enjoy that? I did. Thank you again for that last-minute addition. RPM Italian, the... uh, Bill and Juliana Rancic uh, thing from Chicago. I guess they have other locations as well. Brought to you by... People I've enjoyed for all more than twenty five years uh, when I lived in Chicago. Let us entertain you. Yeah. Places like Shaw's Crab House and of course Joe's. They always uh, do a great job. The place. Man, they know how Did to, you how to see, get it done. see or dialed Did in. you
0: see what is it? Mark Davis is he the guy with I the saw bad him haircut in, in yeah. 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 yeah.
1: And the bad team. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Sorry. Whoops. Uh, that's not a hometown crowd.
0: There. Uh, well, it was a it, look. It was a great party, great event. I had a cool time, and then I went back to chat with um, with Bill Rancic and R. J. Melman who is the president of lettuce entertainment use
3: we started the first rpm uh, over ten years ago and it was kind of uh, by accident a, a mutual friend of, uh, of julian and, and myself and the uh, melman family uh, wanted to introduce us because they thought we would be a good partnership and we kind of courted each other so it was uh, myself juliana rj jared and molly and over the course of about a year i would say rj we got to we, know each other yeah we understood that we have the same values and principles and And really just the same outlook on, you know, how we want people to be treated uh, in an organization. And certainly um, the Melmans have an incredible reputation in the restaurant world. They've been doing it for 51 years. So we decided to open up RPM Italian uh, in Chicago. And it certainly exceeded, I think, anyone's expectations. But I think the one thing that that we haven't changed in the course of the 10 years we've been doing this is we focus on the food first. Um, we source the, the freshest ingredients, um, the most incredible ingredients from literally all over the world, if we need to. We, we just make sure that we start with the best freshest ingredients possible, and then we go from there.
4: What style of Italian cuisine is this i wouldn 't say that it, it is one location. I think from a design inspiration we 've always looked to Milan, um, you know Juliana with her background. Uh, being in, in fashion and, uh, you know, Milan being one of the fashion capitals of the world, we've always looked for stylish, sleek, a, a little bit more modern than what we've done. Um, so we like to offer kind of a bigger range. So we do do some um, Italian-American specialties, you know, it delves into red sauce. But primarily, I think that what we do is, is pretty authentic Italian simple cooking, um, That is a little bit lighter. Uh, All the pasta is homemade in house, so we make 12 or 14 shapes of pasta a day. Um, As Bill said, we we really source some really amazing meats from around the country and fish. Um, So I'm not, you know, there's some coastal aspects of it. Clearly, there's some influences from Tuscany and uh, Naples, uh, but also from the north, too. So, and it also depends on time of year. Okay. Um, Now, I had the chance to meet your corporate chef uh, at the party but could you tell
0: me about who's going to be running the kitchen on the day to day is it anybody we know from within the Las Vegas restaurant
4: community anybody we may know nationally so you got to um, meet Bob uh, Broski who is the um, corporate chef for the RPM group he he is an amazing talent. He was with us for a long time. He was at our three-star Michelin restaurant L2O uh, before that. Has a, a really incredible background. Helped open several RPMs in Chicago, um, and, and just been just an amazing dedication to product and and time. But. The person who will be out here daily is a guy named Mike Belovich, who's been a Lettuce Entertain You partner for 25 years. He um, lived out here for five years, so he wanted to come back to the desert. He got tired of the cold in Chicago and said, hey, I'd love to be part of it. He was actually originally on our opening team for RPM Italian in Chicago, has an immense background. But if you recall, he, he actually was the executive chef at Cafe Bob Ribo, which we had at the Fashion Show Mall uh, back in the day. But he has probably opened uh, 20 restaurants for Lettuce over his career local again, glad to be local again. And, um, and he'll be running the, overseeing the operations on a daily basis.
0: So Bill, do you and Juliana have any, um, any recipes on this menu that came from your personal lives?
3: Well, you know, one of the most popular uh, items on the menu is Mama de Penny's Bucatini Pomodoro. And that's from Juliana's mom and actually from her grandmother. Um, and this is a a dish that Juliana grew up eating every single day. Uh, After school, her mom would whip up the, the Mama de Penny's Bucatini Pomodoro. So Um, It's a very popular item. I think it's probably the number one or number two item that we sell every single night uh, across all the RPM Italians. And um, as RJ said, we make the pasta from scratch every single morning. Um, it's as authentic as it gets. You know, we're really proud of it. And one other thing too, I think is really important to talk about is we have an incredible um, wine list. I was just kidding. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, we we have a director of wine. His name is Richard Hanauer. He was named who's uh, also a partner. He's a partner as well. But he was named uh, Food and Wine Somme, Sommelier of the Year a couple years ago. He's assembled an incredible som team here, and he's put together just just a really handpicked, amazing wine list uh, with an incredible. Uh, focus on Italian wines you know the, the Brunello's um, the Super Montepicino's Tuscans. the Super Tuscans and it is it's, those are my favorite wines <laughs> in the world and, and certainly uh, I think the people when they come in here they're going to just be really surprised with uh, the depth of our wine list
0: for those of us who um, choose to imbibe with other spirits when we do besides wine, will Italy be represented in the terms of maybe grappas or amaros or things like that?
4: We, we always carry a lot of amaros, and we make amaro cocktails. Uh, we make a signature Negroni uh, that we make our own vermouth for. Um, so there'll be a lot of fun cocktails that really kind of spread the havoc, but there's always a big amaro list at, at, at an RPM Italian and... Um, you said wine is often the start of the show, but there's plenty of great cocktails yeah. here <laughs> as well.
0: Cool. Um, I want to talk about that Us Entertain You for a moment because, first of all, it's got a cheeky name, and a lot of people yeah. knew it first. People like myself knew it first. We thought we knew at first through the Baba Ribas and some of your more casual restaurants. Um, you have a lot of restaurants here in Las Vegas. Uh, Joe's Stone Crab, the Eiffel Tower Restaurant, which is one of our, our best restaurants in Las Vegas. Uh, Monami B, which is a fantastic restaurant. Tell me about Let Us Entertain You, uh, just a brief version of its history for those who may not be familiar, and your history in Las Vegas, where you've been a really important part of helping grow the culinary scene.
4: Yeah, we... Um we're a 51-year-old organization. Uh, the company was actually started by my father. He didn't start a company. He started a restaurant. He opened with his best friend in 1971 called R.J. Uh That is still here. It's a burger joint in Chicago in, in the Lincoln Park neighborhood. Um, unfortunately, his best friend passed away about 10 years into the company, but we have about 110 restaurants across the country, a uh, majority of them still in Chicago. But this is our sixth, like you mentioned, uh, in Las Vegas. And and we've been here for 22 years, I think, or 23. Uh, Mon Amiga B and Eiffel Tower opened the day the Paris Hotel opened. Um, that was our first ventures here. And then Joe's was a few years after that, about five, six years after that. Uh, Bob Reba, about the same time, which is now um, our two restaurants, El Seguno and Strip Burger, are there. Um, so we love this town. We have five partners that live in town that are operating uh, our restaurants here so this is a town we want to grow in we have a lot of respect for i used to live here myself i'm so happy to be back here one last question everybody always wants to know when
0: we get people especially people with the tv background Are you going to be doing any shows on location here i mean everybody loves to shoot in las vegas
3: yeah you know we uh we did we've been doing a lot of media here we just did a big satellite media uh tour um, and Julianne and I, are gonna, you know, we're going to be hosting a lot of events here, um, and certainly any TV projects that we have, um, this is a perfect location for us. And it, you've been so. producing shows lately. We've been producing shows as well lately, but we're, uh, we're starting to dip our toe back into getting on screen again. I've started to do some work for the History Channel. I'm working on a show for them right now, and, and, Julianne, and I have, uh, Julianne and I have a, a show that we're uh, kind of in pre- talks on for doing like a home reno show and the real estate market here in uh, in Vegas is unbelievable and it would be a perfect place to shoot that show. Thank you.
0: Thanks to those guys for chatting with me afterwards. I got to say, I never eat a lot at those parties. I don't like. I didn't eat much at the party here last night. Sure. It's just a pain in the dick to balance your drink and your plate and all that. And nice word pick, talk right? to people. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's just there's a reality uh, to that. There's there's appetizers
1: know. and then there's appetizers. Right. Yeah. So
0: um, basically, I brought my old friend Andrea, who was with me for my events on Saturday, brought her over to Amalfi and ate at the bar, and that was fantastic as usual. So bravo to the team at Amalfi and thanks for feeding us that night after all the parties. Up next, another pioneering restaurant celebrates an anniversary, and who's in charge at Eater Vegas? But first, the return of the maitre d'. Kind of. This is Food & Loathing. I am still with John Anthony here in Sparrow and Wolf, but I have been joined with by two other gentlemen who are also legendary in the city of Las Vegas and in our restaurant community. First, we have Ivo Angelov, um, who opened Bellagio, which is what, 1998, if I'm remembering my dates right. He was at Aqua, which went on to become Michael Mina's namesake restaurant there. Um, went from there to the Cirque, as I was just saying, one of my favorite restaurants. Um, From the Cirque went to Costa de Mare and then some other places over at Wynn Las Vegas and is now at Harlow, which is, again, we talk about game changers. We're sitting in Sparrow and Wolf, which is a game changing restaurant for off strip dining. Harlow, which has been open less than a year, has really changed the game in Summerlin. And it is, honestly, it has all of the bells and the whistles and the fanciness and the niceness that you get in the finest of top strip restaurants. It is not dumbed down in any way. I honestly also don't feel that you're trying to shave a little off the price. You're giving people a an A-plus experience and you're charging what is normal for that experience. And as a result, you're getting a very well-heeled crowd over there. It seems to be where all of the... Um, all of the people who know good food and wine that don't want to travel to the Strip, that's where they go. Welcome, Eva. Thank you. How has it been going at Harlow so far?
5: Uh, it's been amazing, right? Uh, I have to say that um, back in the days when Jeff Fine uh, approached me um, when I was leaving the wind, um, I had no expectations, to be honest, to be uh, part of this something, something uh, this special. I thought that's impossible to do high end in a neighborhood. And we proved them wrong. Same as Sparrow and Wolf proved wrong that they can do great food in Spring Mountain Road. We we knew that there is a good demographics there, Um, there is a lot of high end um, community around the area. But we had no idea that you can sell $1,000 bottles of wine in Samarin. I thought most of the people will drink iced tea and (laughs) split a salad, you know? Yeah. Um, Which is, you know, okay, too. Uh, But um, I think it's been amazing, right? I think uh, we're just getting started. It's been only like a few months that we've been open. Um, But we are uh, fully booked almost every night. So we're doing fantastic business. And we're very grateful for the community to embrace a high-end restaurant off the strip that is something kind of in a way it's pioneer uh, most of the places as you know you know there live on the strip for the tourists and to have this kind of uh, following and this kind of uh, response from our patrons it's been just incredible
0: there is a, there's a bit of an irony that you are so close uh, someone who worked at the Cirque for so long. Um, that you are so close to where the Maccioni family tried to open Trey 25-ish years ago and were not able to find a market for that out in summer then. I
5: think it was a little early for them to do that uh, back in the days. I think if it's now, I think they'll be successful again.
0: Oh, yeah, I think that would have been very successful. Also joining us is David Oseis, David, who I think I probably first met at Border Grill. Um you have you bartended there. Um then after going back to school for a little bit, you were at the Aladdin, you worked at the Paris, you worked for one of the my favorite chefs on the planet as both a person and a chef, you bear keller at Fleur de lis in Mandalay Bay, and then later when that transformed into Fleur. And then you went over to work for the Think Food Group for a little while. You were at Haleo. Um, then Chica, cool restaurant. And Heritage Steak into Prime Steak at Bellagio, where you um, teamed up with Rob Moore to finally, finally go off the strip. Now is where somebody went to Henderson, and you guys have opened Rosa Ristorante, which has only been open a couple weeks. And man, you are the talk of Las Vegas. I can't open a newspaper or a magazine or whatever without hearing about Rosa Ristorante. So you have been embraced pretty quickly. Uh, we have we have great representation (laughs) so Uh, i
6: think there's a little excitement over the team as well i think you know first of all i want to say thank you alan thank you rich for having us and thank you john for hosting us here um you and the spare wolf team congratulations um you know Going through my resume just there, you know, I, I, you look back at at everything you've done that leads you to this moment. And it's 20 years, you know, uh, on Las Vegas Boulevard, kind of working up and down the strip and every sort of, you know, dining capacity that you can. And, you know, when Rob approached me about going out to Henderson, which I live very close to. I'm not sure I would have gone if it was in Summerlin. <laughs> but, no, uh, uh, it'd be good when he approached me about coming to Henderson. And we looked at it and we saw the space and we thought, you know, there's a lot of potential here. There's not... You know, we just wanted to make a, a really good restaurant, some place with good food, great service, you know, that, that uh, people can come to regularly, the people of, uh, of Henderson and, and that area. So, I think we've been very successful. We're three weeks old at this point, so it's all very brand new. Um, you know, we, we kind of learn a little more every day, but, uh, you know, feedback is fantastic and, you know, food is good and the people are smiling,
0: so... The reason I wanted to have all three of you together in this room is I think you represent what I'm starting to see as a new trend, which is a return of the front of the house person, the the general manager, I guess would be the job title in most restaurants, but the, the person who is out there touching the tables, meeting people, as a face of the restaurant. Now there was a time Prior, I'm guessing, in my life, I would, based on my limited experience, I'd say prior to the mid-1990s when the maitre d' was the only name you knew at a restaurant. If you wanted to get into a badass restaurant in New York City, you need to know the Maitre D. You didn't know who the chef was. You didn't care about the name of the chef. It was the guy, and it was always a guy in those days. It was a guy at the front of the house and you wanted his phone number and you wanted him to well, I mean, he didn't have a cell phone, but you wanted him to call you back. Um, that changed and interestingly enough, I think the epitome and the last holdout of the great front of the house families was Silio Maccioni at Le Cirque. And when I first got into fine dining and I won't bore you with my personal story about how I was drawn into it but that was right at the time that Danielle Ballou was kind of making a name for himself at the Cirque that was as big as Sirio Maccioni's name. And that was, that was very controversial. And I remember when Daniel went off on his own, put his own name on it, and it, it was a very strange time. And of course, a lot of other things went into that. The rise of food television and chefs on TV and everything that Chef Gordon did. And, you know, and I can tell you so many movies you can watch to know who all these people are that I'm talking about. But it changed. It changed very, very quickly that the chef was the face of the restaurant. And that's where we've been living for about 30, 20, 25 years. Mm -hmm. Now I I see a shift back. Chefs are still very important. We want to know who chefs are. But it's just as important to know who the person is that's in the front of the house. You gentlemen are certainly spearheading that. Your name is on every press release about your restaurants. You're the person we call. When I want a table at Harlow, I don't bother Gina Marinelli, I bother Evo, uh, as I've been bothering you at the Cirque for a decade, I feel like. So, guys, how do you feel about the front of the house and what that role is and how it's changed? And let's just start with Evo, because I mentioned the Maccioni family, and we'll go from there.
5: Um, I couldn't agree more um i can see the trend shifting and um uh, obviously you know are sometimes you know in the past i can see that the role has been diminished a lot by the food networks and any other um but at the end of the day um i remember i had a conversation one time with the uh, chef james Tree, with the first time i met him you know it was kind of funny He's like uh we never met each other, but we knew of each other. And he said, uh, uh, oh, you're Ivo at Le Cirque. I was like, yes, I am. I was like, so you're the guy that you can book the whole restaurant with your phone. I was like, well, that's a nice compliment. I appreciate <laughs> that. Um, not that, you know, that the chef cannot book, but uh, I think, like you said, uh, what Sirio Maccioni brought in back in the days, and he become a legend uh, in a way in our industry. Um, now it's, it's becoming... Um, a necessity for the restaurant. Because chefs in general, you know, especially if they're absentee chef, if they're from another state or from, uh, they're too busy with other projects and doing cooking and they're never in the dining room itself. We're the one that greet the guests. We're the one talking to them every day. We make them feel special. We cater to their needs. We know their children. So they become kind of like extended family to us. We connect on a personal basis. They become your friends. And that's why people in general come to restaurants, not just to fulfill their needs for food. It's more about the connection you have with that person, and the fun times you remember. You might not remember what you ate or what you drink, but you remember how they make you feel. And that's how, I think, the psychological moment of that experience should never be diminished.
0: You've always been with... Well, you you were at the Cirque for so long, which they clearly they always respected the front of the house and that role because of of Mr. Maccioni, of course. Um, And then you went over to Wynn, which seems like a very customer-based... Anyway, like, you know, the customers at Wynn want to feel like they're family and that kind of stuff. So... I don't know if it was ever out of fashion in your world for the front of the house person to kind of having to take a back seat to the chefs, but for the other gentleman at the table, um, David, we'll we'll start with you. Of all the places that you've worked, has front of the house always been important or is it just starting to sneak back in? So
6: that's a good question. So. My whole career leading up to it was all about operations. It was learning how to run a restaurant and manage costs, and you know, motivate staff, and, and looking at you know just the big picture of how restaurants run. And then I worked for Hubert Keller, and everything changed. Um, in fact, you know, you talk about the maitre d. He was both. He was the chef and the maitre d. Um, you know, and in, in San Francisco with his wife, you know, they we, they ran that together. But but working for Hubert, he would take the time to come into the dining room regularly every night and we'd look and we'd talk and we'd, we, he'd kind of guide me in, in what he was trying to see. And through that, you know, I learned not only about hospitality, but also, you know, an understanding of what great service is and, and how is it that we create these experiences, Evo was mentioning. Um, and, and so, yeah, I mean, it, it I, I think, you know. I would, for me, it's always come a place from operations. But when it comes to service, you know, there are influences in my life that have guided me
0: towards where I am now. Right. But when you were at Fleur de Lis, it was a Hubert Keller show, right? It was not the David show. No, no, of course not. Um, but yet, I, at uh, where you are right now, Rosa Restaurante, mm-hmm. I feel like it is it is very much a partnership of you and Rob. And um, so, when did that change in your life where it became very important for for somebody in your position to be the face of the restaurant? Well, I think that that,
6: you know, through my career, you know, heading out of, of working with Hubert Keller and into Haleo and you try to find partnerships we don't make these things happen on our own there's too many moving pieces and we have to work together and so you know always working with the chef and trying to understand what our visions are and making sure that they match in some ways they're like a marriage you know you you kind of sometimes you're fighting sometimes you're pulling sometimes you're pushing but in the end hopefully you're on the same page and and you know i really found that connection probably most meaningfully with chef rob moore um it, it I've had good relationships with chefs in the past, but with him, we just connect, we we understand each other, we communicate in the same way, we have the same vision and direction. And so when he came and asked me if I wanted to be a part of what he was doing, it was was, uh, almost impossible to say no, because he's the one that I trust the most. Um, And and so with Rosa, the opportunity is not only only that we're creating a place, a a restaurant with great food and great service, but we're building a culture. We wanna build something that is there to last and hopefully can grow, and and through that, our experiences together—that—that's what we hope to accomplish. So,
0: John, five years ago, mm-hmm. coming out of Grinders, yes. right, um, yes. and getting together with with Brian Howard, was the idea that yeah, we're going to be equal partners in this place, and we're both going to be faces of this restaurant, and we're both going to to interact with the customers. You know, how was that presented? And not at the, all. <laughs>
2: <No>? <laughs> but but you know what? It became that. Li- listen, at the end of the day, Sparrow and Wolf is the brainchild of Chef Brian Howard. This is his baby across the board. I've worked with Brian, fortunately, for as long as I have. And as we grew through the relationship again into this restaurant, uh, our partnership grew within the company. And, and realizing that he couldn't be out front as often as he was we we worked that partnership out so it was 50-50 in that regard i to kind of speak to what david was saying where it was you know understanding the the mechanics of the restaurant before you know learning the the love of the room coming from the east coast uh i didn't have the the business acumen background that was taught to me initially within my management career, my purpose was making sure as the maitre d' as the manager was to ensure that the guest experience was the best possible. So coming out and working my first job as a manager in in Vegas at Gallagher's, it was wild because the staff was blown away because I was on the floor from the opening bell to the closing and I touched every table more than one time and I was holding them uh, uh, accountable for what they were doing as well. They were more accustomed to the manager who came in, opened the restaurant, and then was in the office for a good portion of the, of the service. And you saw a lot of that in the early 2000s coming up through where that absentee manager was off the floor, as you said, that you didn't see the presence regularly. And everything I've tried to do within our room is culture. And we, we all three of us have said that word now where you build that You hold the responsibility for the gratitude of the guest walking through the door. You have to let them feel that immediately as they come in because they're not coming in because they're hungry. They can get a sandwich if they want to, you know, at home and, and, and eat and fulfill that. They come out for the human connection. They come out for the opportunity to, to share breaking bread on the table and throwing that dinner party. Mm -hmm. So when Brian did ask me to be a part of Sparrow, I was incredibly honored because I was living in California. I chased my, my wife down out there, uh, and dragged her back kicking and screaming to Las Vegas. Uh, but, but. I knew that my role was to be the facilitator of the, the room to make sure everybody felt warm and welcome, whether they were deeply a foodie, didn't understand what fee was, uh, <laughs> never had eaten, you know, foie gras, uh, sweetbreads, whatever it might have been, and
0: make them feel comfortable within that, that
2: environment. Right.
0: Um When you walk into some of these restaurants that we've mentioned, and I'll give you a way of example. I mentioned going to the Cirque this week. Um, We walked in and one of the people on the floor brought over to my wife a Polaroid that they had snapped of us last time we were there, right? And that was just really cool. Like that meant so much to her that they had a record. Now, I will admit dining as Al Mancini is not the way that other people dine and I get a lot more personal attention. People always remember me. But what I have found in the best of the best fine dining restaurants in the restaurants that we're talking about right now, the Sparrow and Wolf, the um, Harlow, by all means, and I hope I'm gonna see it at Rosa Ristorante, is that everybody gets a level of that treatment, that they are remembered, that their favorite dishes are remembered, maybe their favorite sports team or you know, whatever, whether they bought a new car. I mean, like the little things that people remember to talk to you about when you walk into a restaurant. A, gr- a great restaurant a great high-end restaurant treats everybody that way. That's got to be challenging. But, uh, yeah, could you, could you guys speak to that, that level of connecting? And what kind of Rolodex or computer system do you have to keep on hand? Because, you know, I remember when Charlie Trotter's restaurant, it was a deal that you would never eat the same dish twice. And, you know, and they kept notes on everything that you ate every time. So could you tell anyone that wants to jump in and talk about how that culture has developed over the years and what goes into it?
5: Um, yes, I couldn't speak highly of that because it's a full-time job. You know, it's it's not just taking your responsibility slightly. Uh, taking good notes and uh, taking good records of what you're doing, actually, the uh, tremendously the guest experience. So now you have to remember, uh, you can remember... Uh, it, Mancini but you need to remember who the wife is and what's <laughs> her name and what is her what is her sign or whatever it might be that could be relevant to that experience so taking those notes a lot of the times when you work on a strip you have always a flock of tourists that you don't know necessarily but working in uh, in a neighborhood restaurant um, every guest really counts we see those people over and over we know what table they like to sit, what they like to eat, what they don't like to eat, what are the type of wine they like, what they don't really like. Uh, so this kind of experience, when you keep good notes of that, you don't necessarily have to remember yourself. But if you have good notes and good records of that, just quick glance of those records can make a huge difference for that experience. And I think I couldn't be uh, more proud of that accomplishment that we have created that culture of the restaurant and that kind of organization, they can follow up on every single guest. We, every time we have notes, the servers will take those notes and deliver to the hostess and she will put those notes in there. So the next time they come, the experience gets better and better and they actually return for that reason. And uh, they don't just come, like you said uh, earlier. You can eat anywhere, especially if you're an affluent person, they've been around the globe everywhere. They go to Luster they go to all the fine dining restaurants, but that brings them back to our restaurants in the neighborhoods. Um, which were um, those kind of feelings and those kind of emotions, they're emphasized 110 times more.
2: We, I call would, it, we call it the cheers effect here, yeah. and literally, exactly. I I I, I want to have somebody scream out, John. You know, <laughs> when I walk through the room and slide a beer down the bar to me, <laughs> I I I and and my staff is very much required to take uh, you know at least two to three notes on every table, turn it back in. Obviously, we have technology now that helps us uh, keep track of all of those things. You know, when you were running a 30-seat room, it's easier for you to remember it personally. Now you're dealing with hundreds and hundreds of guests on a you know regular basis, so you require the staff to make that connection, find out a few things beyond what we can pull up off of uh, a receipt, a POS. Uh, It's the personal things that that really make the effect. We have an open air kitchen, and this is very important to the concept of Sparrow and Wolf. We loved the glass bubble that was around it when Jenny Pho initially sold us the space. We give tours into the kitchen constantly. And if I have a, a, a child that's engaged within a meal, it's the first person we're gonna ask to come back into the room. Because again, you win that family over by not ignoring the kid like most restaurants will. You want them to realize that they're just as important.
0: Yeah, that's very cool.
2: So just to jump in, because Evo mentioned something about
6: remembering the wife, one of the things I would remember down in Las Vegas Boulevard is that often you would not want to welcome some of your regulars back because you didn't know if they came with their wife last time. So, yeah. Yes. You, know, <laughs> yeah. you got be, to be
0: careful. But, but it, well, yeah, I, I had that recently <laughs> where um, somebody, and I won't tell you what restaurant in a restaurant where they should have known me, said to my wife, so how long have you lived in Las Vegas? <laughs> and she, yeah, I know she was like, oh, who's he been in here with recently, <laughs> funny. it's not me, because <laughs> um, they knew." me, but that's what they said to her. So that, that was a little weird. Um, but yes, it's usually handled, handled really well. How much of the politics, I've been watching The Offer on Paramount+, and there's a scene where they, they're like, why did you seat him at his table? You should have seated him at my table, right? How, how much of that kind of cliche that we remember growing up when we watched fancy restaurants on TV, people wanted their specific table and the politics of that, is
5: there any reality to that? And is it still out there? It is, I, and I remember a story that Sirio told me back in the days uh, when he was in the Palace Hotel. Obviously, it was a small restaurant, and he had all the important people dining there regularly. And um, at the Bellagio, we had a very small, kind of same kind of feel. So he told me the story that, you know, when he first started there, and he was uh, just a Metro d', and uh, the important people will come, like the Duke of Ellington will come, at eight o'clock usual table click, you know. <laughs> then the next one is a uh, Frank Sinatra, eight o'clock <laughs> usual table click. Well, there was like three or four important people. They would not even take a no for an answer, right? So, uh, end up being the same table. So, what do you do in this case? You know, and we have to get this challenge uh, my entire life now. <laughs> uh, And, you know, sometimes it doesn't go necessarily extremely well. (laughs) Uh, We try to kill him with kindness, but not necessarily have to make those decisions in your life which harm you like better your left or your right you know? so yeah. have you ever lost a customer uh, we, i have and you know it happens <laughs> yeah. but not very often as, as long as you put it in a nice way
0: but you know like i've always said about people who say don't you know who i am like the, oh, yeah. that's that's a bad question to ask because there's only two possible answers either no so you're not as famous as you think you are or yes and clearly i didn't give a shit that's why you had to ask <laughs> so there's no good answer to that question ever but um and I think it's kind of the same deal. Like, If it's like, why didn't I get my table? Is that guy more important to me? Don't ask that question. You're sitting at the other table. You don't want to right. hear
6: the answer to that. But, and Prime you know, was all about access. It was access to the fountains, right? That's what everybody wanted. And right. so mm-hmm. you had to make sure that not only were you flagging all those reservations every day, but you knew who was coming in. What are the tables, the nicest tables that have the best view? Um, and, and who are they available for? And then are you holding any for any last minute requests? You know, the people blowing up your phone and asking for a Reservation, um, you know, and and so I think you know you learn to juggle that balance, but not everybody is going to get the table that they ask for, and and sometimes you just all you can do is smile and and provide the best service
2: possible, but uh, you know. It, well, when you get off strip and it becomes your restaurant, you don't
0: hold that table anymore. Yeah. <laughs> you, you sell every single table when you can So, um, So it must have changed a lot in the days of cell phones where now people can call you and text you 24 hours. If I've got one of your numbers, how late's too late to ask for a reservation or how late's too late to hit you up? Or is it, I mean, it, last minute, I assume you get calls 24 hours a day constantly. It must be a pain in the ass. It's tough having dinner with the wife. <laughs> <laughs> because you want to answer the phone when you have the guest who's
2: calling or is reaching out to you because you're that face and you've taken the evening off. So shutting it off can be difficult because uh, you, you really, you, we have that, uh, that, that Pavlov reaction when it rings that we have to answer it and our mouth starts to salivate. So th- that can be the difficult one. But other than that, I'm pretty much 24 hours. If I'm awake, I can answer it. I'll book it.
5: Well, that's what makes you, I think, uh, successful versus, you know, just another manager of a restaurant. To be able to uh, to deliver that experience 24/7, I think that is what the people expect from you. And you know, if you if you do it well, if you answer immediately, that's where they come back. You know, I mean, nobody wants to wait for a text over an hour these days. You know, they want an immediate answer. And usually, it's the last minute. Always the last minute. And it's always on Saturday at seven o'clock when we're fully booked and
4: mm-hmm. uh,
5: we have no idea where we're going to put the tables and who. But then. Those sometimes uh, that's what makes the restaurant front the house face as uh, appealing or a, as, a, as a figure. You always have to figure it out. you figure it out that's your job yeah.
0: And nobody likes to deal, I don't care how great the casino company is at everything else, their restaurant reservation services all suck. So I would way rather talk to somebody in the restaurant, even if it's just somebody at the hostess stand, to be honest, but I'll end up calling a GM because that's who you know you're going to get. Because the people who are doing restaurants for every place within a casino usually don't know what they're talking about. And also it's really tough to get reservations. Quick question before we go because we are running low on time. Quick quick question. How many tables do, when you're in a casino and then when you're off strip, how many tables do you have to hold back just in case Bill Gates calls tonight or just in case Steve Wynn calls or you know the the people who are the real players? How, how many do you hold back for the just-in-cases?
5: At Kamsa, we always held two. At Lucerk, um, it was one of those situations where it's super small. So we really couldn't really hold too many, maybe one, always have one that's uh, available, but we have other options. You know, certain times uh, when a guest is dining, you can really take care of their check and then let them move on. You know, if that's the case, you know, you can do this kind of things in extreme situations and we've done it in the past, uh, if we have to accommodate really somebody's really important. But in general, in the casinos, those people will you'll uh, be contacted the day of, so you can plan better. Cool.
6: Uh, usually prime is the best example. It was about three to four. You know, we would we would keep some out of the inventory. They'd always book up, and, and usually actually we'd block reservations if we're looking at a you know busy weekend out for CS, for example. Um, you know, you, you would start getting those VIP
0: requests you know a week out, and so you'd you'd have to pull back more than the typical. Cool. Uh, well, gentlemen, I want to thank you all for coming in and chatting with me. You are three of the best of the new generation, of bringing back, bringing back front of the house. And for those who really, you know, I've meant we've mentioned Sergio Marchionne so many times, so I've got to recommend. I don't know where you can find it, what streaming service has it, but if you can ever find the movie A Table in Heaven, it is an absolutely brilliant movie about um, Mr. Marchionne's life. He also has his autobiography, which I believe just called Sergio. Yeah. This is Food and Loathing.
4: I'm Jonathan Jossel. Who are you? (laughs) I said I'm the mayor. Actually, I'm the CEO of the Plaza Hotel and Casino. We're located on the corner of Main Street. That's also the name of our podcast, the only podcast produced by a Vegas hotel. That introduction right there is bigger than any other introduction. If you're missing Vegas, in between visits, or just Vegas curious. I absolutely love, love, love to play slots. Join the fun every week right here on our podcast on the corner of Main Street.
0: It is time for the news, really quick news today, and a bit of sad news, actually, from John Katslamidis in the RJ. Um, Angie Ruvo has died at the age of 98. Angie was the wife of Lou Ruvo and the mother of Larry Ruvo. Those are two giants of the Las Vegas community, but Angie's own contributions to the local food scene should never be overshadowed by her last name or the men in her life. She and Larry opened the Venetian Pizzeria in downtown Las Vegas in 1955. And in 1966, the family launched the Venetian Ristorante and Pizzeria on West Sahara Avenue. That's where Herbs and Rye is today. And while it was before my time, true Vegas old-timers remembered as one of our Valley's first foodie hangout catering to celebrities and VIPs. So rest in peace, Angie, and of course our condolences to the Ruvo family who are such amazing members of our community.
1: Great story about how the name Venetian went to uh, Sheldon Adelson. For zero money, but they got the liquor franchise oh, that's, <laughs> that's for awesome. the Venetian, and, uh, and hence uh, Ruvo Southern Wine and Spirits is what it is today.
0: Interesting. See? Great trivia that's from Rich. That's from
1: On the Corner of Main Street, We're the not podcast getting sued over that, of, uh, right? of The Plaza. No. <laughs> okay,
0: cool. No. <laughs> I like the, Larry yes.
1: came and told that story on the pos- podcast for The Plaza.
0: That is awesome. Uh, Also in the news this week, another restaurant anniversary, Soul Belly Barbecue celebrated a year in business this week. And I spoke to Bruce Coleman about that.
7: It feels like an amazing accomplishment to have been able to open a restaurant kind of in the middle of a pandemic. And then you know, still be open in a year and be thriving, which is very exciting. Just says a lot about what we're doing here and a lot about the community and the support of the community.
0: What have you learned about operating in Las Vegas in that one year, man? (laughs) Because this is your first Vegas restaurant that's all yours, right? So, What have you learned about operating in
7: Vegas? The community here is very tight, um, which is good because it's a very supportive community as long as you're doing the right thing within the community and you're treating people correctly and you're working alongside other businesses as opposed to trying to compete with them. Um, And that's what this is really all about. It's about being collaborative and being inspired by others and hopefully inspiring other people as well to do great things together, individually, uh, but mostly to kind of build a name, you know, hopefully get Soul Belly to become a namesake in in Las Vegas.
0: How do you feel about the Arts District community? How it's embraced you and how it just is as a a community and a sub-community of the foodie community here in Las Vegas? It's pretty incredible.
7: You know, I have a bunch of friends here that operate businesses and some that were friends before, some that are new because we all operate down here together. Um, And it's been pretty incredible. I mean, there's been a ton of collaboration between myself and Vinny at Good Pie and James at Esters and Justin at Main Street Provisions and Horse Trailer Hideout. We're working alongside with them now uh, for catering. And it's just, it's hard to put in words and how it's exciting because it's something we all hope for but it's not always something that actually happens
0: and finally Eater Las Vegas has a new editor I teased this last week if you are a foodie or a restaurant owner or a food writer or anybody in Las Vegas you should be excited to know that Jana Carell is taking over over there I worked with Jana at the Review Journal she is absolutely brilliant very um You know, just anything you could want in that position. And I think Eater, um, you know, since the loss of their last editor, we've been wondering who is going to take over. I could not be happier about having Jana in that position. So congrats, and I hope your bosses will let you come on this podcast. Then again, they may hate me. I don't really know. I don't really care. But I love you, Jana. That's all that matters. So fuck the rest of it. Yeah. You rule. Do good stuff. And that's about it for this episode of Food and Loathing. Thanks to our guests. We had Ivo Angelov. We had David as He just <laughs> left. He leaves the room, and I forget who he is. And, of course, Mr. John Anthony hosting us here at Sparrow & Wolf in their beautiful private dining room. Thank you all for being here today. Thank you so much for uh, joining us today, guys.
1: And as you're listening, tell a friend about Food and Loathing. Spread the word on social media. You can find all the appropriate handles. At Al's website, theneonmohawk.com. Reach us direct by email, info at foodandloathing.vegas. And if you haven't done it yet, download the Neon Feast app. Use it to find your next dining destination. Whatever you need, whatever you want. Find it at the Neon Feast.
0: And if you can't get enough of my voice and would also like to see my pretty face, you can see me on the CW Las Vegas every other Wednesday morning at approximately 8 15. Although I'm not quite sure what I'm doing this next one, but it will be there sometime in the eight o'clock hour.
1: Catch y'all now and then all weekend long with the Neon Feast update at the Vibe. 997 here in Vegas, 98.1 in the high desert, 98.9 at the river.
0: With producer Rich Johnson and John Anthony, I'm Al Mancini, stay hungry.